One local school, and I was told to say it's the best local school, one local school marks student work with one of three letters. M for mastered, P for progressing, or an R for redo. Young people, how would you feel about getting an R on an assignment? Like, who likes to redo their work? What about you law school or med school students? Uh, would you like to redo your work? What about those of you in an office environment? What if you handed your work into your boss and he said to you, uh, do it over. In fact, start all over again. It's rare that we think a, a redo or a restart is a blessing. But come on. I mean, after you get the blue screen of death on your computer, sometimes a restart is necessary, right? And now I'm hearing all of the people with Macs in their, you know, my head saying, that doesn't happen to us. But I, I am certain that there is an alike experience for those Mac users out there. Sometimes, sometimes it is certain that a restart is necessary. And so it was in the days of Noah, in the world after the flood. Genesis 9, the chapter that we're studying together this morning, is something of a restart. But why? Why begin again? Because God wanted to teach the world not only that He is holy and that sin and rebellion are worthy of death and judgment, but also that He was committed to seeing His promises of redemption and salvation come to pass. And this should encourage us when we feel that we are kind of the same day after day, sometimes struggling with the same sins over and over again. We think that sometimes we're faithless. But God teaches us here that He always remains faithful. We might fail day after day, but we see here that God's love never fails. Because He can never fail. This is what we have the privilege about thinking, uh, of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, provided, or the ones provided there, Gen to Genesis chapter 9. If you're using those Bibles that are provided there in the pew, I think you can find the passage on page 6. And let me just remind us all of what we've kind of considered so far as we've journeyed through the book of Genesis. In the opening chapters of Genesis, the opening chapters of the Bible, we learn that God made everything and everyone. He gave man and woman life, labor and love in a beautiful garden. He set them there in a beautiful garden sanctuary. And yet they threw it all away by their sin. And still in the face of their rebellion, God promised redemption. He promised that he would send a seed of the woman, a son, who would come and defeat sin and Satan and death. And the rest of the book of Genesis reveals how God is kind of working these promises out. As we saw in our last study, the world had been dominated by sin, corruption, and violence. And so God purposed to wash the world clean in a flood of judgment. And God did just that. But not before saving Noah, his family, and two of every living creature on the earth. So God's redemptive purposes remain alive with Noah's preservation. And today in Genesis 9, we see Noah commissioned to begin again, a restart. Everything is new and everything is the same. That is good news because though the sinfulness of man remains, God's purposes of salvation are the same. He is going to save sinners. So from this passage, we learn how we're to live in God's world after the fall and the flood. In particular, we learn three lessons, that we are to carry out the purposes that God has set before us, while giving thanks for His preservation and patience, 
And three, living in purity and trusting His promises until the day we die. Those three points, I think they're listed on an outline there in your bulletin. They're going to form the outline, really, of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, where we see that we are to carry out God's purposes. His purposes are the same for us, even after the fall and the flood. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. This is what Scripture says. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I have And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful. And multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Well, let's remember that Noah has just stepped off the ark. He's given thanks to God through sacrifice. And then we see in these verses, they represent God's marching orders for them in the world after the flood. God, His purposes for them include reproducing image bearers, ruling over the animals, receiving God's good gifts, and respecting life. That's a fair summary of some of God's purposes, actually, for us Today, let me just unpack these verses a little bit more. If the words, God blessed Noah, there in verse 1, you see them. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, sound familiar to you. It's because they're an echo of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. In Genesis 1, God made man in his image. He commissioned him to reproduce and rule the earth as his representative. As we know from the story so far, all of that went terribly wrong. And these verses, they actually account for new, the new difficulties that sin presents. We need to look at the new dynamics that depravity has ushered into the world. But one thing that should astound us, despite the presence of depravity, is that God tells Noah and his offspring to get back to the work of reproducing and ruling. And this teaches us that God's original commission was not wrong or fundamentally flawed. Reproducing and ruling the earth as God's responsible representatives, seeking to see His glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, was the right idea. It was simply carried out in the wrong way. Right? Adam and Eve wanted to rule the earth their way instead of God's way. And so here God reminds Noah to rule the earth His way. And the first plank of God's purposes for Noah and his family is that they reproduce. And let me just go ahead and state the obvious Because the obvious is not always obvious these days. This purpose of reproducing is given to married couples. Noah and his wife went into the ark. Noah's three sons and their wives went into the ark. Once they came out of the ark, they were all given this commission as married couples. Again, that this is the purpose repeated after the fall and the flood. Shows us that God means for this to be an enduring practice for married persons who live upon the earth. Now... Some married couples may be providentially hindered from having children. And that is certainly a burden to carry to the Lord in prayer. And actually to share with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so they can bear that burden with you. 
and pray for with you then. Still, insofar as it depends upon married couples, they should pursue children and not put them off until it is a convenient time. As my father once told me, children are never convenient, but they are always a blessing. Married couples who may not be able to have children may actually want to consider pursuing adoption, adopting unwanted children. Uh, that would be a wonderful picture of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We were all spiritual orphans, and in Jesus Christ, God has welcomed us into His family as sons and daughters. Physical adoption is a reflection of that. It's a faithful expression of carrying out God's creative purposes here, of being fruitful and multiplying. And think of the situation that Noah and his family were facing just after they got off the ark. There was much to do, much to rebuild. No city or society was spared in the flood. And so it's surprising, isn't it, that the first command that God gives them is this. Build your family as you go about rebuilding the world. Here the commission that God gave to Adam is being reaffirmed to Noah after the fall and the flood. And we are still called to pursue this today. In fact, we're called to be stewards as well. We see it right there at the end of verse 2. You see in that phrase, into your hand they are delivered. This is with reference to the animals. It shows us that God intends for man to rule the earth, to exercise dominion over a creation. As he said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Importantly, this phrase reminds us that man is a steward, a servant under God's authority. God is entrusting man with this responsibility. He's to represent his creator and his character and his kind of rule, his good and wise rule as he carries out this task. And yet really it's the beginning of verse 2, not the end, that shows us that God is well aware that the situation is different than when he first issued this command to Adam in the garden. Where Adam would have ruled a world of perfect peace, Noah and those after him will now rule in a world filled with fear. The animal kingdom will now fear mankind. And this is actually a blessing and a gift from God. I wonder if you've thought about this. This is a kind of protection for mankind or to mankind. That animals will generally stay away from humans is good. For a great many animals are deadly and dangerous. Now in God's mysterious and kind providence, He's generally given animals a natural fear of man. And this keeps man safe on the one hand, and on the other hand, able to reproduce and fill the earth. In God's commission of Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1 and 2, He generously gave Adam and Eve fruit from every tree in the garden except one. And in verse 3, we see a similar expression, don't we? Do you see it there? Of God's generosity. He gives mankind a well-balanced diet of meat and vegetables. Uh, everything that moves and plants. Now, personally, I'd like to make more of the fact that God mentions meat first and vegetables second, but I think that would be asking too much of the text. What we do need to see here is God's generosity, right? He gives every moving thing. The green plants and everything. Set your minds back to Genesis 3 for a moment. Remember when Satan tempted Adam and Eve? He diminished God's goodness. He suggested that God didn't really want to give Adam and Eve very much food. But God had actually given them food from every tree in the garden, just except one. And here, we see God is once again being gracious and generous. He's provided much. And we should receive His good gift of food with thanks. Meat, yes, and vegetables. While God gives generously to man, children, animals, and food, He also sets limits upon him. You see that in verse 4? God knows man's sinful nature. Uh, his sinful nature is 
mentioned in chapter 6 before the flood and in chapter 8 after the flood. He knows that man is prone to selfishness, depravity, and excess. And that's why in verses 4 to 6, we see God call for man to respect life. Man doesn't have unlimited authority on this earth. Remember, he's under God's authority and to rule as God has commanded him. He doesn't have unlimited authority over life or even animal life. So in verse 4, we see that God prohibits man from eating animals with blood, still pulsating through them. That's the idea of the text, actually. While man is permitted to eat animal meat, which we saw in a previous verse, he is not to do so in such a way that disrespects life, even the life of that animal. Here we're seeing that God desires to inculcate respect for life. Man's capable of having a profound disregard for life. And so in the next verse, verse 5, God works from the lesser animal life to the greater human life. He's concerned that man respect animal life, but he is even more concerned that man respect human life. Payments and punishments were not laid out for, those, for that grotesque behavior mentioned there in verse 4. But there are payments and punishments required for the unlawful taking of human life there in verse 5 and 6. And God is not overreacting here. Uh, in the book of Genesis, we've already seen a brother murder his brother. We've seen a man like Lamech kill another man for just striking him, just wounding him. We've seen violence spread across the earth. Here, God announces that there will be consequences for the unlawful taking of human life. In fact, there are consequences even just for negligence concerning human life, when an animal takes the life of a human. The, the brothers who get together at 6.30 on Wednesday mornings to read scripture and pray together actually get to read about this from Exodus chapter 21 earlier in the week. In Exodus chapter 21 verse 29, uh, we read, If an ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it, the ox, kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. You see, God cares about life. God's the author of life. He has authority over it. He gives and He takes away. No man has the authority or right to the unlawful taking of human life. And man is actually to do his due diligence in making sure human life is not lost through negligence. That means being careful when we drive. Trimming our trees so they don't fall on our neighbors or their property. Locking up your ox if you happen to have one. And so on. Right? We're told why there in verse 6. For God made man in his own image. As we learned in Genesis 5, so we learn here once more after the fall and after the flood that man still retains the image of God. Though man has been marred by sin, he still represents God as a steward of creation. He still reflects something of God's character as his conscience bears witness to it. And he still has the opportunity to relate to God as his maker and savior. He's still responsible to carry out God's commission. Being made in God's image is what makes man's life especially precious. And because that is so, man is not only to produce life, but also to protect life. And here we see that God requires justice for the unlawful taking of human life. The justice necessary, according to God, is the death penalty. We learn from other scriptures like Romans 13, that God has now entrusted the state with the power of the sword to execute justice. Capital punishment is more than biblically permissible, we see here. Life should be protected from womb to tomb. I've said it before and I'll say it again because it's so clear in our text and the scriptures as a whole. Biblical Christians 
stand against abortion and euthanasia because it is murder. It is the sinful and unlawful destruction of image bearers. It is an attack on God through attacking man made in his image. And so we should encourage our representatives with our voice and with our vote to uphold God's standards of justice when it comes to life. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, teaches us that Noah is to carry out God's purposes for him so that God's redemptive purposes of sending his son will come to pass. Having children will continue the line of the seed of the woman through which the Savior will one day come. Man might be the same, filled and marred by sin, but God is still the same too. He is committed to his purposes to save. Genesis 9 teaches us not only to carry out God's purposes, but also to give thanks for his preservation and patience. The reason why humanity can reproduce and rule over creation and receive God's good gifts is because God promises to establish and preserve a context in which creation can flourish. This is the second lesson we learn from this chapter. As you carry out God's purposes, give thanks for God's preservation and patience, especially with you. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17 now. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Before the flood, uh, back in Genesis chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, God promised Noah that he would establish a covenant with him, his family, and every living creature that he kept alive in the ark. Here we see God keeping his word as he establishes the covenant he promised. Covenants in uh, the ancient Near Eastern world were binding agreements, often formed by two or more parties. Usually, uh, a great king would form a covenant with a lesser king. In these covenants were promises and signs of assurance attached to them. We'll call those signs pictures just to keep the alliteration going. So that's something what we're seeing here. There are parties and promises and pictures of assurance of this solemn pact that we call a covenant. God, of course, is the great king of creation, and he is establishing this covenant actually with the entire created order. Notice in verse 9 that this is going to be a covenant that expands down through time. It's made not only with those of that generation, but also with their offspring 
after them. Indeed, this covenant would roll down through the ages. So these are the, the parties of the Noahic covenant, God and the whole created order. But what are the promises of this covenant? We could probably actually include God's promises mentioned earlier in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20, 21 and 22, where God promises to sustain life through the seasons. But we must certainly include the promises mentioned right there in verse 11. Do you see it in uh, Genesis 9, verse 11? I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Observe, it is only God making this promise. He's the only one who can affect a worldwide judgment as he did in the flood. And he's the only one who can restrain all of the waters in the heavens and the recesses of the deep, as we read about in Genesis 7 last week. In short, God promises to provide a stable environment on the earth so that his saving purpose can come to pass. God promises common grace to all mankind in that sense so that one day he can bring about his saving grace in Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, our world has, has witnessed a significant water event this past week, has it not, with Hurricane Ian? It was horrific. It was deadly and devastating. There were certainly floods in many places. And though our world has witnessed a significant water event in this past week, this should not lead us to doubt God and His promise here. We should not doubt that God has kept His promise here in Genesis 9. Hurricane Ian was a localized water event. Notice in verse 11 that God is promising not to put to death all flesh again. He's promising not to destroy the earth through a flood. What God is promising is that there will not be another worldwide flood that kills everything and everyone. As we remembered last week, do we still have floods today? Yes. Do people die in them? Sadly, yes. But the water events that our world witnesses and experiences today are nothing like what Noah and the world just went through. And since this covenant, there has not been another worldwide flood. Instead, God has preserved the created order and caused life to reproduce and flourish for the glory of His name. And you should give thanks to God's preservation. He has allowed you to have life and breath. He has not swept you up in a worldwide judgment of water. Our generation is just as deserving of God's judgment and wrath. And yet God has preserved our world so that we would know His patience and pardon in Jesus Christ. Indeed, His looking at the rainbow is a great sign of His patience. We've met the parties of the Noahic Covenant. We've heard the promises of the Noahic Covenant. What is the picture or the sign of the Noahic Covenant? It's rainbows. Rainbow is a picture of assurance that God will keep His promises not to judge the world in a flood. In the Hebrew, uh, the word for rainbow is actually a warrior's bow, like as in a, a bow and arrow, a battle bow. So in the flood, God had His bow and arrow pointed at mankind and at the earth in judgment. But now, God has put down His bow at His side. It's at rest, or He's hung it up on the wall, so to speak. Whatever the case may be, it's not in His hand being wielded as a weapon against the world. And let the reality of that bow and its use in the flood that was issued as a judgment be a warning to us all that going to war against God is a war that we cannot win. So friend, if you are at war with God today, lay down your weapons and come to the great King who is willing to make peace and offer peace 
through his son. And did you notice in verses 12 to 17, who looks at the bow? Who is it that looks at the bow? See verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I, that's the Lord, I will see it. And remember it, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. It's God who remembers his covenant. It's God who remembers. And for God to remember is for God to act. So the regular appearance of rainbows in the sky is a reminder to God to keep his covenant promise, to keep it in force and in effect, which should make you ask why. Why would God desire a regular reminder of his promise not to flood the world with judgment? Why would he desire to look at a rainbow every time in the sky and remember, don't flood the world? There's there's a rainbow. Don't flood the world. Is it not because the world is at every moment worthy of judgment? God's preservation of this world should not lead to presumption on the part of sinners. For we are worthy of judgment. Every one of us. And it is especially concerning and strange that our neighbors, friends, and co-workers who practice homosexuality choose to co-opt a sign of God's peace with the earth. Almost as if they dare God to judge them for their sin. God's rainbow is a sign of His peace. It's a sign of His patience. But we should all be careful not to presume upon God's kindness and patience. For God's kindness and patience is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness and patience, His promise of stability, should lead us to seek Him for salvation today. God's preservation of this world should lead sinners to thank Him for His patience. It was God's patience in maintaining the stability of the world that allowed the story of redemption, beginning in Genesis and stretching on to the coming of Jesus. God's stability to the Creator Lord allowed that story to play out, allowed our Savior to come and to accomplish salvation for us. God withheld His judgment on sinners. He withheld it again and again and again. And then, when His Son came into the world and lived a righteous life and laid down His life on the cross, God the Father poured out a flood of judgment and wrath upon His Son. It was on the cross that Jesus was deluged for our depravity. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Friends, do not presume upon God's patience. He judged the world by water the first time. And He will judge the world by fire the last time. Only those who trust that Jesus Christ bore the punishment for their sins on the cross and was raised from the grave victoriously on the third day will escape God's wrath. So turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Give your maker the glory that is due to his name and trust in his son. And if you want to know more about what it means to escape God's judgment through Jesus Christ, that that final judgment was actually brought forward in time and laid upon his son for you. Friend, talk with the Christian who came here with this morning. Find me at the door after the service. This is our great hope that we don't have to face that last judgment because Christ has borne it for us and for our salvation. Just as the rainbow 
was a covenant sign of God's preservation and patience. So we will partake of a sign of the covenant at the end of our service here. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Jesus said that the cup is a sign of the new covenant in His blood. It's a visible pledge of His promise to forgive those who have pledged themselves to Him. And made that known publicly in baptism. Think about baptism. In baptism, we undergo, we go under the water to proclaim that Christ died in a flood of God's wrath for us. And that we died with Him. And in our baptism, we are raised up from our watery grave. Just as Christ was raised up from His grave. Just as the rainbow reminds us over and over and over again of God's covenant promises, His patience with us. So we remember God's covenant promises and pledges to us when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or baptism. The rainbow should make us thankful for God's common grace to us and to our world. The Lord's Supper should make us thankful for God's saving grace to us in Jesus Christ. Give thanks for God's preservation of our world that paved the way for His Son to come. Give thanks that God has been patient with you and offered you salvation in Jesus Christ. Recognize that in the world after the flood, man has been the same, filled with sin. But so has God. He has kept His promises. He's been patient and offered peace through Jesus Christ. God's rescue from judgment doesn't merely call for carrying out His purposes in thankfulness. It also calls for living in purity and trusting in His promises until the day we die. This is the third lesson that we learn from our text, from Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. And as we inch up to this section of Genesis chapter 9, we're left to wonder, how would Noah, this kind of Adam-like figure, live in the world that God has washed clean in His judgment and promised to maintain His peace? He's been commissioned like Adam, offered a bounty of food like Adam. Would he fare better the first time than the first man? Follow along as I read in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the wickedness of his father and told his two brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall be his Shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Well, things start off fine in verses 18 and 19, don't they? But we're told of Noah and his sons. And the purpose of this is to tell us from where all the nations of the world will come, will descend. 
Moses, uh, the author of Genesis, is actually setting up for us uh, the, the event of the Tower of Babel that we'll see in just a couple of chapters. He's telling us that all of mankind dispersed from the ark, and they're all going to gather together again at that tower to make a name for themselves. That will be a great rebellion of all the peoples of the earth once more. But how do we get there? How do we get from Noah worshiping God's name to the world worshiping themselves and their name? Well, Noah sins and falls just like Adam. He's a son of Adam. And the son is like his father. You can see Noah's fall there in verses 20 and 21. He worked the ground like Adam, but he enjoyed its fruit in excess. Unlike Adam and Eve, Noah had access to everything. But too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. All things in moderation, as my mother used to say. It's actually somewhat humorous to read commentators at this point as they reflect on Noah, some of them at least. Some want to excuse Noah as though he didn't know how powerful fermented fruit could be. But beloved, Noah lived on the earth for many years before the flood. He saw wickedness in his generation, and we ought not doubt that drunkenness and nakedness were but some of the sins that he saw. Noah was guilty, and there is no excusing his guilt or explaining it away. The Bible never condemns the responsible consumption of alcohol, but it does condemn as sin drunkenness. Consider Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not the spirits of alcohol. And given the rise in drug use and the passage of laws, even here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, which permit the legal use of intoxicating drugs, like marijuana, for example, you should know that the Scriptures make it plain that those are outside of uh, the bounds for Christians. We are called not only to avoid drunkenness, but we are called to be positively sober-minded. We are called not only to avoid drunkenness, but to be wise about our decisions with respect to alcohol. We cannot make sober, wise, prudent, judicious decisions if we are not, in fact, sober. So, beloved, if you struggle with alcohol, like Noah did, then you need to know that you're not alone. There's a, a congregation of brothers and sisters in Christ who want to walk alongside you and help you overcome that addiction for the glory of God. If you drink alcohol, do be careful, not only for yourself, but also for others. You should have some kind of self-imposed limits, and you should follow them. Your spouse or a close Christian friend in this congregation should be able to ask you questions about your consumption of alcohol. And they should be able to hold you accountable in that area. Your consumption of alcohol should be such that a fellow believer is able to say about your life that you show impeccably good judgment when it comes to the use of alcohol. And you should be careful not to tempt other brothers and sisters in Christ in your consumption. Noah got drunk, but we should not. And as you look at verse 22, is it really surprising that one sin leads to another? Noah lays exposed in his shame and nakedness. His drunkenness has led to his sexual immorality. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which I read just a moment ago, hinted at the connections between drunkenness and sexual immorality. But Romans chapter 13, verse 13 makes it explicit. Paul writes, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Noah, we see here, did not protect his chastity, nor did he protect the chastity of others. 
his nakedness tempted his son, Ham, to some sort of sexual immorality, as we see in verse 22. And in fact, the language of Noah knowing what his youngest son had done to him, you see that in verse 24, confirms this. The details are appropriately hazy. We don't know exactly what happened. But whatever did happen was sexually immoral. And Ham did not honor his father, Noah. Beloved, let us recognize that we are not only responsible for chastity with respect to ourselves, keeping our hearts and minds and eyes pure, but are also to protect the chastity of our neighbors by our clothing and by our conduct. Shem and Japheth show us not only that we should honor our fathers and mothers, but their righteous conduct shows us how we should protect our neighbors' chastity. We should not look on the nakedness of those who are not our spouse, and we should not reveal ourselves to those who are not our spouse. And this is one of the foremost challenges of our day, isn't it? As we live in a very sexualized world. God calls for purity among His people in a way that is radically different than our world. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. As I've said before, while it is sin to conceal your God-given sex, it is also sin to reveal too much of your God-given sex. We should neither suppress our God-given sex, nor should we use it seductively. We need to honor our neighbors and seek to help them maintain chastity in heart and in mind. That does not mean that you must cover every curve, but it does mean that your dress, you should dress to reveal the glory of God according to your sex. Noah's sin of nakedness confronts us for how we've sinned in this area. Noah's sin of nakedness calls us to confess our sin in this area and to forsake it. But let us also be comforted by Noah, brothers and sisters. Just as Noah was covered, so there is covering for our sin in Jesus Christ. Friend, maybe you've sinned in the area of nakedness like Noah. You need to know that there is mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is pardon for your sin. There is forgiveness and there is power in Jesus' blood. Jesus not only pardons, but he empowers you to turn away from sin and to pursue purity for the glory of his name. It's really astounding how this chapter echoes so much of the earlier chapters of Genesis. Like Adam, Noah fell by fruit. Like Adam, Noah sinned and left him naked and ashamed. Like Adam, Noah received a covering. And like God issued curses and blessings after Adam's sin, so curses and blessings are issued after Noah's sin. You see that in verses 24 to 27. See, Noah, he awakes, he discovers what has been done, and he deals out curses and blessings. Now, we need to be careful not to see in Noah's response the sinful, petty, retributive wrath of a shamed and dishonored old man. The poetry in Genesis often explains why things are they are in the, way, in, in the world. And it sometimes prophesies, actually, of what is to come. So what we see here in Noah's lineage is a significant parallel to Adam's lineage. Bruce Waltke explains it like this. As Adam's three children were divided into the ungodly Canaanites and the godly Abel, replaced by Seth and his descendants... 
So Noah's descendants are divided into reprobate Canaanites and the godly Shemites. And Japhethites will be welcomed in to the people of Shem. See the parallels there between Adam's sons and Noah's sons. Noah's curse here has sometimes been used for ethnic partiality in Christian circles. It's been called the curse of Ham. But really, it's the curse of his son Canaan, as you see there in the text. Uh, Sadly, this text has been used to disparage and discriminate against those who have darker skin. But, But think about who's being talked to here in this text. All of these boys are from the same family and almost certainly of the same skin color. Uh, Adhering to the so-called curse of Ham to inculcate ethnic partiality should be rejected by every Christian. There is no room for such sin and wickedness. There is never any scriptural justification for ethnic partiality. But we still have to ask, why is Canaan cursed for his father's sin? Does that puzzle you? Why does Canaan receive really what Ham should deserve. It might help to understand, and you see this there in the text, that Ham is the youngest son of Noah, and Canaan is the youngest son of Ham. So again, why does the curse fall on Canaan? Well, the youngest son of Ham, the youngest son, Ham, dishonored his father, Noah, and so the youngest son, Canaan, would receive his father's dishonor, Ham. The punishment fits the crime. Either way, we're seeing the promises of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That there will be seed of the line of the serpent, and the seed of the line of the woman continue. That's the good news. The seed of the line of the woman will continue. We see this in Noah's blessing. Though the sinfulness of man is the same, God's purposes of salvation remain because he's the same. So in verse 26 we read, He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah is prophesying that Canaan will be subjected to Shem. Added to that, Noah is prophesying and promising that God will be committed to Shem. He will walk with him and be his God. And this, of course, reaches its full redemptive purposes in the Gospel of Luke, where we learn in his genealogy that the Lord Jesus is descended from Shem. And, as we see played out in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death through his life, death, and resurrection. And in verse 27, Noah prays for the enlargement of Japheth, that Japheth would dwell in Shem's tents. Remember, God's blessings come through the channel of one man. Remember, everybody in the ark was blessed because of their union with Noah. They were part of his family. And so we're seeing here, Shem will be God's channel of blessing to those under his care. And this principle really remains true for us today. If we are to escape God's curse and wrath, then like Japheth, we need to come into the tents of God's beloved one, of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to hide ourselves in him each and every day until the day we die. And death is where Genesis 9 ends, doesn't it? If you remember back to our study of Genesis 5, we notice the drumbeat of death. We saw that phrase over and over again. And he died. And he died. And he died. It went on and on. But in Genesis chapter 5, those words weren't appended to Noah. 
Now they are. We see these words finally connected to him in verse 29. And with these words, we're reminded that just like Adam, he died. Noah's not the son, the seed we've been looking for, waiting for, hoping for. But the promise through the blessing has been extended. The son will come. God reminds us and reassures us of that. So was the restart successful? Well, let's think about that as we conclude. In Genesis 9, Noah and his family have stepped off the ark into a clean world. A world washed by judgment. It was a fresh start. A restart. Those on the ark were blessed because God set His grace upon Noah, a righteous man who did all that the Lord commanded. Having received His commission to reproduce and rule the world, respect life, having received a sign in the sky that God would provide to them a stable world for this task, like Adam before him, Noah sins. Doesn't this make Noah's fall somewhat shocking? I mean, think back to Genesis chapter 6 and 7, where we're told over and over again that Noah was righteous in his generation. He did all that God commanded him. All that the Lord commanded him. Noah, I think, is a sobering reminder to me that you can actually live a life of purity. You can pursue righteousness and pursue God's purposes for you into old age and still sin grievously in old age. Let us be warned by Noah that we are never so sanctified that we're not capable of serious sin. And let us be encouraged too because Noah, he made it to the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He is a model for us. He trusted God. He's a model even if he's a flawed and fallen model. When you look at this redo, this restart in Genesis 9, you might say to yourself, it seems like man is the same. And you know what? You're right. But do you know who else is the same? God. And you know what? God is greater than man. Greater than all of man's rebellion. Greater than all of man's rebellion is Jesus' redemption. We need the lesson of Genesis 9 to remind us that nothing and no one will thwart God's plan of salvation. There might be restarts along the way, but God is continuing His purposes that we're saying from the beginning to save a people for His glory and honor. God's purposes and His promises will prevail. Believer, rejoice in that. Rejoice that Noah's sin does not stop God's purposes of sending His Son and salvation. Rejoice that your sin will not stop God's purposes in your life either. So live out God's purposes with His grace, by the strength of His Spirit. Give thanks to God. Walk in purity. Hold on to God's promises until you die. Though your sinfulness remains, God remains the same. He is committed to you. And you're going to see that in just a moment. His visible picture that He loves you and gave His blood for you. Let's pray for the grace to remember that now. Let's pray together.